This episode is brought to you by the generous contributions of the members of the Best of the Left podcast. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, Counterspin, On the Media, Ring of Fire, NPR, and It's All Politics. Here is your first quote. There remain some significant details to be ironed out. That was the big laugh line in a big speech to Congress this week. What speech? The um, Obama, President Obama's speech on health care. Yes, indeed. Very he good. He is such a kidder, that he is, president he is. is. Funny man, funny man. <laughs> he, he did, as he say, leave out some details like, will the death panels be stained or natural wood? Um, <laughs> President Obama explained what his health care reform program will do. It will make us all happy and healthy and get together and love one another right now. And what it won't do, it won't create death panels or cover illegal immigrants or allow him to seize your liver whenever he gets hungry. But, That's Rahm Emanuel. Exactly. God. But what everybody, of course, is talking about after the speech was not the speech itself, but the Republican response. And by that, I mean Congressman Joe Wilson of, yes, South Carolina, shouting, you lie at the president, becoming the second South Carolina politician this year to insert himself somewhere inappropriately. <laughs> they just can't stop. But Wilson, Wilson, despite all the attention he got, was not the only Republican to heckle the president at the speech. Others booed. Some held up signs with a message, what bill? One Republican from Illinois got up and walked out right in the middle. That plus the entire Alabama Republican delegation, they whipped off their shirts to show that they painted the word Muslim across their chests. <laughs> confused and it really said muslin but yeah well you know <laughs> it was misspelled they had to run around and... did you see the video of of i hate to pick on you jane but lindsey graham oh this was great this lindsey was graham you're, you're, the you're, president you're... made an, an analogy about public health and public public universities and lindsey graham briefly thought it was a pretty good point and started to applaud but then looked around and he turned it into like wiping his hands. Like, yeah. I missed that part. Oh, that's good. I mean, I mean, obviously he'd been studying his Bible and saw the Punches Pilot technique for handling a crowd. And Charlie pays a little too much attention to these things, Jane. And we just, you know, it's. Well, I want to know where Lindsey Graham's hands are at all times because he's from South Carolina. Do nothing at all. My arms are so high that you kiss like you. Just laying twined here, undiscovered Safe in here from all the stupid questions Hey, did you get some? So we can get some. 
Joining us now is a man who caucuses with the Democrats, but who is a proud independent from the state of Vermont, Senator Bernie Sanders. Senator, thanks very much for coming back on the show. Good to be with you, Rachel. Let me ask you to uh, uh, d dispute my premise right off the bat. Do you think there are zero votes for health care reform among Republicans in the Senate? Rachel, I have believed that for many, many months. And it's, it's sad to me that it took the administration that long to finally uh, catch up with what reality clearly is. Uh, the Republican Party today is enormously obstructionist. Uh, they have no desire to address the enormous crisis that the American people are facing uh, in health care with so many people uninsured, underinsured, a million people going bankrupt. You know, you talk about death panels, 18,000 people a year die because they don't get access to a doctor when they should. So, no, it doesn't surprise me uh, that the Republicans have not come on board. I don't believe they ever had any intention to. The last time uh, you and I spoke, you said that if Republicans were going to stonewall on something like the public option, uh, you could support using budget reconciliation rules to, to beat a Republican filibuster, to pass health reform without any uh, Republicans. Do you think that is going to be the way that this moves forward? Well, I think there are two things that have to be done. Remember, in the Senate, we have 60 uh, people in the Democratic caucus. That, in fact, once Massachusetts sends us another senator, that is enough to beat back. Republican filibusters. And every Democrat in this country must demand that every member of this caucus stand firm against Republican filibusters. And then we can develop a strong health care reform plan, which focuses on prevention, which increases primary health care, which makes sure that every single American has coverage, which begins to deal with the absurdity of the insurance companies uh, cutting people off because they have pre-existing condition or because they got sick in the previous year. So I think what we need to do is get 60 votes to stop the Republican filibuster and where we can, and it's a little bit tricky, but where we can certainly use the reconciliation package. So just to, be, just to be clear, you're separating the issues of cloture, the filibuster, and the bill that's actually voted on. So conservative Democratic senators like Mary Landrieu and Ben Nelson, other people who have not said that they would support the kind of legislation that you would, for example, you're saying that activists who want health reform should pressure them to vote no, to stop the Republican Absolutely. filibuster, and so that there can be an up or down vote on the bill. Absolutely, because it's a lot easier to go forward in a comprehensive way through regular order, and that means stopping the Republican filibuster and then bringing forth a vote. And as I've said many times, if some of the conservative Democrats don't want to vote for final passage because we have a strong public option, because we're taking on the insurance companies and the drug companies, fine. All we need is 50 votes plus the vice president. So that is the preferred route. If you can't do that, then you use reconciliation. That is a harder approach to bring forth comprehensive reform. I guess, and this is, I'm outside the Senate, I'm outside Washington, and I don't know how the politics of these things work, but I'm guessing that since there has been a de facto 60-vote rule to get anything through the Senate in recent years, since the Republicans have been in the minority, and the Democratic leadership has not made a ton of noise about that, I'm guessing that they are not interested, they're not inclined toward trying to hold all the Democrats together to stop that Republican filibuster. Are you getting any support for this idea? Well, Rachel, we are. I mean, it's okay. been hot and cold. Uh, the leadership on occasion has made it clear that they expect everybody to vote against the Republican uh, filibuster. Uh, unfortunately, the next day, sometimes there has been a reversal on that. But I think the bottom line is what we need is the president, we need the Democratic leadership to be articulating very clearly what real health care reform means, take on the right-wing echo chamber, which is lying and distorting what we are trying to do, rally the American people, as the president did so brilliantly during the campaign. 
In my view, once the American people understand the, the, the distortions coming from the right wing, once they, we can rally people who have no health insurance, small business people who are going out of business today because they can't afford a soaring uh, cost, I think we can bring forth a strong bill uh, and make the American people proud. I want to start with one of my pet peeves. Uh, it's these people bringing guns uh, to town hall events or other speeches of Barack Obama. Now, in the beginning, I said if they allow one, then a dozen are going to show up. And that's exactly what happened. They allowed one in New Hampshire, and a dozen showed up in Arizona. And uh, we were told, though, hey, don't worry about it, because the guys that are showing up here, they're just exercising their rights. And obviously, if they show up with weapons that you can see, they don't mean any harm, although the guy in New Hampshire was holding up a sign saying that the tree of liberty must be watered from time to time, meaning with the blood of tyrants. In other words, I'm looking to kill the leader, right? That doesn't seem really harmless. Well, how about the black guy who showed up with the AR-15, the assault rifle, in Arizona? Well, first, I want to give you a little clip of Rick Sanchez talking about it, and then he, the kid's on, uh, or the guy is on Alex Jones's program, okay? So let's listen in a little bit, and then I'm going to tell you what he heard the day before, which is the news of today, which is fairly shocking and at the same time uh, certainly goes to prove my point. So let, let's first watch clip number 10. Carrying an assault rifle, he's at an Obama event, that's an AR-15 on his back, and we're being told from our crews there on the ground that he may not have been the only person in the crowd today that was carrying a loaded weapon. We should let you know, by the way, it's important that this is perfectly legal in the state of Arizona because they have an open carry law. And uh, my pastor, uh, Baptist pastor, actually got beat up by the Border Patrol at that, at that checkpoint, which has nothing to do with the border. It doesn't even run north and south. And all they do is just ask you whether you're a citizen or not. And I believe that this checkpoint, the only purpose of it is to get us used to stopping throughout our daily lives and answering questions to federal agents. And, uh, yeah, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, it's been documented, as you know. They just wave the illegals through. But they see a family of, of Americans, black, white, Hispanic. It's like, we're going to have one hell of a time today, boy. <laughs> going to teach them how to be slaves. Now I'm starting to get a clear picture. You go to Pastor Anderson's church, I see. Yeah, yeah, yes, I do. Proudly. I think it's the best church in the world. Hmm. Okay, best church in the world. So, now, let's put aside the illegal immigrant talk that they had absolute... I mean, it gives you a sense, though, that the guy's off his rocker. Yeah, no, they're not checking for immigrants at the border. They want to get used to... get you used to dealing with federal agents, and then they beat you up for no reason. I'm sure, right? And by the way, so that the host there turns out to be an utter clown, right? So I didn't know much about him before, but that's it. I got enough info out of that. But he said there that it's the best church in the world. So 
When I first saw this clip, I didn't know that it, this guy was Chris's pastor, right? The, the guy who brought the assault rifle to Obama's event. So I thought, yeah, he's a crazy pastor, but who cares? Well, as you're about to see, this is why it might be relevant. Let's go to clip number nine here. And this is a pastor, Stephen Anderson, from the Faithful Word Baptist Church. And this is what he said before Obama showed up to town and one of his people showed up with a, got, a rifle at Obama's event. Now tonight I want to preach this sermon. And you know, you've probably never heard a sermon like this before. Actually, you probably have if you've been coming to church here for a while. But you know what? Here's my sermon. Why I hate Barack Obama. That's my sermon tonight. Because, you know, Barack Obama's coming to town tomorrow morning. Barack Obama is coming to town. And um, he's going to be here tomorrow morning. Who knew that he was coming to town? I didn't know. I just found out recently. You know, with his health care and everything like this. And I'm going to tell you something. I hate Barack Obama. You, you say, well, you just mean you, you don't like what he stands for. No, I hate the person. Oh, no, hey, you mean you just don't like his policy. No, I hate him. Now, I'm going to prove this from the Bible tonight, why I should hate Barack Obama. Why God wants me to hate Barack Obama. Why God hates Barack Obama. Now, turn back to Psalm 58, and let me ask you this question. Why should Barack Obama melt like a snail? Why should Barack Obama die like the untimely birth of a woman? Why should his children be fatherless and his wife a widow, as we read in this passage? Well, I'll tell you why. Because since Barack Obama thinks it's okay to use a salty solution, right, to abort the unborn, because that's how abortions are done, my friend, using salt, right, saline solution. There are many ways to do an abortion. One of the most commonly used ways in America today is this injection of a saline solution and the embryo melts like a snail. And I'd like to see Barack Obama melt like a snail tonight because he needs to recompense what he has shown. He has spent a life of being pro-abortion. He has voted on legislation to not only kill the unborn, but to kill the newborn. But let me tell you something. I don't love Barack Obama. I don't respect Barack Obama. I don't obey Barack Obama. And I'd like to see Barack Obama melt like a snail tonight. Because he needs to recompense, he needs to reap what he sown. You see, any Christian will tell you that someone who commits murder should get the death penalty. Because we don't need to constantly just have this, oh, it's great, it's wonderful. You know, I love to preach encouraging sermons, and there's nothing more encouraging than the Bible. But I'm here to tell you tonight that God is a God of wrath and vengeance. And that's the message that ought to be thundering from every pulpit in America today. People ought to be trembling today. The people in America ought to be scared to death and trembling and saying, oh, God, what are you going to do to our country? Oh, God.
And you say, are you just saying that? No. When I go to bed at night, Stephen L. Anderson is going to pray for Barack Obama to die and go to hell. You say, why would you do that? That, that our country could be saved. Amen. That innocent lives could be saved. It's not just the abortion. You know, I, it's, it's, all the, it's all the warfare, too, that our country has no business being involved in. <laughs> now you want to complain about the warfare? Please. All right, but let's get to the serious issue here. The very next day, one of the people that goes to his church and says it's the best church in the world shows up at an Obama event with an AR-15, with an assault rifle. <laughs> you think these people are harmless? You think these people are harmless? You're crazy, man. There are... That... Stephen L. Anderson should be arrested. No ands, ifs, or buts. When he says he hates Barack Obama, who cares? He's allowed to hate him all he likes. When he says that he's a socialist devil, he's allowed to say that. He's allowed to say that he hates him in 18 different ways. He hates his policies. He thinks he's a socialist, fascist, whatever else he wants to call him. That's all perfectly okay. When he says he should melt like a snail and that he should be killed and that he's praying that he dies and goes to hell and that if someone really cared about the country, they would go ahead and do that because in order to save innocent lives, that's always the justification that they use, right? Well, you've incited someone to very specific violence. And then that guy showed up with a rifle at the event. No, this is unacceptable. No, there's uh, no one believes in freedom of speech more than I do. But there are limitations to all our rights. You can't shout fire in a crowded theater, and you can't tell somebody to go specifically kill the president. And they can't show up with a rifle, and the Secret Service does nothing about it. No way, man. No way. One, they got to remove everybody at these events with weapons. They have, as Eleanor Holmes Norton explained yesterday, that you can clear the airspace when the president is there. That's perfectly legal. The Secret Service says when the president's in the area, state law no longer applies. Federal law applies. They need to clear a much wider perimeter. Okay? That's number one. And number two, Stephen L. Anderson should be arrested. That is directly inciting violence against a specific individual, in this case, the president. I, I, and we should consider ourselves incredibly lucky that that clown who showed up with a rifle didn't do anything stupid after hearing that sermon, which he thinks is the best church in the world. These people are not harmless. They're incredibly dangerous. And if we don't do something, they're going to, okay? And what we need to do is simply and effectively just enforce the law, okay? And protect the president. Come on now. This is beyond all bounds of reason. So I start a revolution from my Because you said the brains I had went to my Step outside summertimes in I stand up beside the fireplace Take that look from off your face You ain't ever gonna burn my heart out 
Critics often call for journalists to not just parrot official statements, but check them against reality and call out any falsehoods. Then again, sometimes journalists check official statements in such a way that you'd like to call for them to please stop. A recent example came from the September 13th New York Times, where Cheryl Gay Stolberg wrote a piece about one of Barack Obama's health care speeches. Obama cited a report from the Treasury Department that, readers were told, he said found that nearly half of all Americans under 65 will lose their health coverage at some point over the next 10 years, and that more than one-third will go without coverage for longer than one year. But aha, writes Stolberg, quote, in fact, that is not precisely what the department found when it analyzed data from a University of Michigan survey that tracked the health insurance status of more than 17,000 Americans from 1997 to 2006. The survey found that 47.7 percent had lost coverage at some point during those 10 years for one month or more, and that 36 percent lacked coverage for at least one year during that time, though not necessarily 12 months consecutively. Mr. Obama extrapolated those statistics to predict what might happen in the future. Critics say that the president, who has deplored the scare tactics of his opponents, is now employing scare tactics of his own, close quote. Well, in case you didn't follow that or think you didn't, the concern is that Obama's presentation is importantly misleading because the immediate future could, for reasons unexplained, be radically different from the recent past. Or, as Dean Baker put it, Obama was making extrapolations about the future based on the past. Next thing, he'll be telling us that black is white and night is day. This is why we need an independent media. you may have heard resounding in town halls from the critics of the president's proposed health care changes. Rep. John Conyers said he really didn't see the point. I love these members that get up and say, read the bill. What good is reading the bill if it's a thousand pages and you don't have two days and two lawyers to find out what it means after you read the bill? But even if he had decided to read the bill he's supposed to vote on, he'd still have to pick which version to read. Democrats in the House and Senate have different proposals. A bipartisan group of senators is discussing a compromise plan, and both the Republicans and the president have outlines of their own. One incentive for Conyers to pick the House Democrats' version of the bill he could listen to it on his iPod. A group of voice actors have formed a website called hearthebill.com where they're posting an audio version. HR 3200.
to provide affordable, quality health care for all Americans and reduce the growth. So why does this bill rate its own MP3? And why, after passing the largely unread Patriot Act and the stimulus bill, both of which cut to the heart of American values and fears every bit as much as the health care bill, is suddenly everyone so big on reading? We called Ken Silverstein, who covers Washington for Harper's Magazine. Hello, Ken. Hi. So it seems to me that this bill is being read or misread a lot more noisily than many others. But listen to these guys. You get the sense that suddenly reading is, you know, really fundamental. What gives? Well, bills are passed constantly that no one has read. If you were to go to some of these members who are most vocally complaining about this, look at their committee assignments and then look at the bills that that committee approved and then were voted on by the full Congress and ask them, oh, tell me about that bill. You know, tell me about page 63 in this important provision. They won't have the foggiest idea of what you're talking Sounds about. Sounds like a trick question to me. It is sort of a trick question, but even if you were to be maybe a little bit fairer and just ask them to tell you about some of the very important provisions in some of the bills that they voted on in recent years, huge, huge bills, they will not be able to discuss those bills in anything other than generalities. Now, partly that's because the only people who read bills, if they're read at all, are staffers. Members of Congress never read these bills. They don't have time. A few years ago, I wrote about an appropriations bill, the massive bills that fund the departments of the federal government. They're among the most important bills that Congress deals with. These things are routinely voted on, and no one has read them. I mean, I wrote about one bill in particular. It was $16 billion in money, and it was actually finished at 12.15 a.m., and it was voted on 16 hours later. In your piece, you said that if they'd wanted to read the bill, they would have had to have read 208 pages an hour every hour for 16 hours. Exactly. And, you know, that was if they happened to be cruising the House website where it was posted at 12... 15 a.m. and they'd stayed up all night because of this page turner that they just couldn't put down. I mean, this happens all the time. As a citizen, one would think that what we could do to help is to read the bill or a bill if we could get a hold of one, but they're largely unreadable. In subparagraph A, by striking subparagraph B and inserting subparagraphs B and D, and subparagraph B, by adding at the end the following. Ooh, wait a second. I love this part. Quote, Subparagraph D. So what's a news consumer to do? Go to organizations that are monitoring and tracking and analyzing the bill, and they will have the highlights, the really exciting parts, on their websites, and they will have analyzed the exciting parts, and it will spare you as the public citizen and consumer having to read the whole thing yourself. So name a couple of those. Uh, You probably want to check out websites on both sides of the debate. I know... For example, Public Citizen, which would be on the left side, has information about health care reform. To see what members of Congress are being funded by what interest groups, go to opensecrets.org, which is a very good website that tracks campaign finance and also usually will analyze issues as well. There's factcheck.org and politifact.com that will check the assertions that are made and let you know who's lying and who's telling you the truth or somewhere in between. VoteSmart.org will take you to a list of organizations that are advocating for healthcare reform, whether pro or con. This is everybody from the AARP to the Children's Health Fund to the Global AIDS Alliance. There's a list of probably about 30 or 40 groups. So there are ways to cut through the fog without subjecting yourself to reading 
the entire bill, which won't make you any smarter anyway, because you'll have fallen asleep after about page six. If you feel like you're just one travel mug away from total contentment, you need to check out the Best of the Left store. Between my cafe press and print fiction stores, I've got all the t-shirts, travel mugs, and tote bags you could possibly want to show your Best of the Left pride. If it's a gift you're looking for, then go no farther than a podcast by mail subscription. It's a great way to introduce the show to someone who's not into the whole podcasting scene, but would love to hear it every week sent to them on a CD. Just go to the store tab at bestofleft.com. first said that it was a secret plot to kill old people. Then they said it was a secret plot to take away veterans' health care. Then they said it was a secret plot to take away health coverage just from Republicans. Then they said it was a secret plot to kill women with breast cancer. Casting around for another group of hopefully scarable Americans to try to turn against health reform, it's possible reform opponents have hit a new low this week, targeting disabled children. Republican members of Congress Trent Franks and Kathy McMorris-Rogers held a press conference this week warning that kids with disabilities would somehow become victims if there is health reform. Pressed by reporters as to whether she could actually point to any language in proposed health reform bills that would deny care to disabled kids, Congresswoman Rogers said no. But she did say that parents of disabled kids are worried it will happen anyway. Hmm, I wonder why on earth they'd be worried about that. Maybe because people like Kathy McMorris Rogers and Trent Franks are telling them to worry about it? It may also be useful to note here that kids with disabilities in this country right now, by and large, have government-run health coverage. The S-CHIP program is kids' health insurance. The Medicaid program covers people with disabilities. So when Kathy McMorris-Rogers and Trent Franks tell people with disabilities to be afraid of government-run health care, they're telling them to be afraid of what they've got now. Don't let the truth hold you back from a good scare, though, right? We've got Egyptian cotton. The kids don't stand a chance. I thought it was an incredible use of the president's best arrow in his quiver, which is the bully pulpit. And yeah. this this president, as he has so many times, and Mike, you and I have been talking about this, it, 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 people have underestimated Barack Obama for as long as he's been on the national stage. They have underestimated this guy, and I think they do it at their own peril. The Republicans do it all the time. And this is why they're so angry, is because every time they think they've managed to marginalize him or, or demonize him, he's the one, he's the Messiah, he stands up and he hits it out of the park. Look, here's what's important to me. Here's, here's what the guy said. He says, look, we're not going to allow these these 
in these, these corrupt insurance companies to deny you coverage for pre-existing problems. We're not going to allow them to put some kind of – that's the first thing. We're not going to allow them to put an arbitrary cap on the amount of coverage that you can get. We're not going to limit that kind of thing. We're not going to – we're going to limit how much out-of-pocket expense you have. That's the third thing yep. I think is very important. He says we're going to require companies to do things like pay for checkups and preventative care like mammograms and colonoscopies. That's extremely important. I mean, so, so he hit some really meaningful things. He says, you know, he's still, he's, still, he's still way too deferential to the insurance industry. I don't know why he doesn't get it. The insurance industry are the people that, that hate him, will do anything they can to undermine his, uh, his role as president. I don't know why he doesn't just say, look, it's over. I, you know, you, you, you've made this bed. Sleep in it now because I'm coming after you. I don't know why he won't do that. Well, what you heard him say, Mike, was that it, it, he is not trying to end private insurance. You and I might think that that would be a good goal and that that would be fine and, and make them public utilities. But uh, he, he said that's not where he's going, and frankly, there's no political will to do that. What he did say very specifically is, I want to hold them accountable. Those were his words. Those words mean something. I want to hold them accountable. And that, I think, is his message very plainly to the big insurance companies. Well, I mean, you know, look, here's here's the thing that, that I, I, again, I just get a little incensed when, I, when you have such a direct, I mean, this, they're, they're, they are truly his enemy. They are truly his adversary. And at some point you just say, look, you know, let's mix it up. I, I disagree with you. You disagree with me. Let's take our best hold. He needs to do that. Instead, what he does is he panders to them by saying they're going to have tort reform. Truth about tort reform is it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. It mean, here, here's, the, here's the truth. Anytime they've tried the things he's, he's talking about where they said, well, we're going to give insurance companies a break. We're going to give, you know, limit cover. We're going to limit liability with doctors. In places like California, cost of insurance went up. Uh, in, in, even though they, even though that law passed, Texas, same issue. Florida, same issue. Alabama, same issue. Everywhere that the insurance, the, unit, the Chamber of Commerce has snuck in this meaningless crap about, you know, uh, health care costs are going up because of lawsuits. It's just been ridiculous. Let me, you know what the truth is? Less than one quarter, think about it, less than one quarter of 1% of all health care costs are related at all to medical malpractice claims. At the same time, you have a quarter of a million people. This is by the AM, this this is the AMA saying this. The the JAMA this is in virtually every journal that came out and studied whether or not malpractice has any bearing on health care. They said no it doesn't. And then second of all they said, but let me give you the bad news. The bad is is a quarter of a million people are uh, you know, are affected every year by medical malpractice. Either they die from medical malpractice, mm. they're crippled from medical malpractice. Uh, and, and so, so here you have Obama buying into that. He knows what the numbers are. He's not an idiot. But to see him pandering there, I thought was, you know, it was, it was, it was unnecessary. He, he, di he didn't promise. He promised only to do what was it, the same trial program that Bush had proposed, that he was going to try and do a trial program. He didn't, he didn't make a commitment on it. What he did do and what he used that speech and that bully pulpit to do, Mike, I think very effectively, is to call out the lies. You talk about lies that are being told, 
flat out saying to the American people, it is a lie that we are trying to kill grandma. It is a lie that there will yeah. be death panels, yeah. that people who are, who are uh, doing this, saying this, are cynical, they are irresponsible. And he referenced, without calling her out by name, Sarah Palin, yeah. a woman who, as recently as the day of the speech or the day before, was continuing to affirm that that's what's in there. Yeah, he li- did the same thing about illegal... Liars hate to be called liars. Liars hate to be called liars. And speaking of which, uh, he called out the lie that illegal immigrants would be covered under this health insurance plan. And, of course, he was called a liar hmm. by Congressman Joe Wilson from South Carolina. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, this is great. I, I sent my money in today. I don't know if you have. I, I, uh, I, I, act, I've, I've, I've noted Act Blue act, has a page up for, for his opponent. Act Blue, go online. I sent my money in today. As a matter of fact, the money is just moving in in just huge amounts. Here's what's interesting. Here's there was $100,000 overnight, oh, overnight for, yeah, for Wilson's yeah. opponent. And then the next day raised almost an equal amount. But here's what's interesting. Miller, Rob Miller, who's his opponent, almost, you know, it was the closest election that had ever taken place in that district. In that district. He's, an Iraq, he's a Democrat, an Iraq War veteran. This is a good man. This right. is a strong candidate. And he can beat Joe Wilson, who, frankly, may have just beaten himself. Well, let, let's talk about Joe Wilson a little bit. People don't, you know, the, we're going to learn a lot more about Joe Wilson. But my 10,000 foot on everything I read, and we're, we've just started. But everything I read, you know, here you have this un, uninspired, underachieving guy. He's, he's really never done anything. His, his dad was military. He's, you know, anything that he's gotten, he's basically gotten from mommy and daddy. It's, he's kind of this good old boy redneck from South Carolina. He's the symbol of the Republican kind of we the people lunatic villagers uh, who show up at town hall meetings. He's got, you know, that basic, you know, IQ about room temperature. He's not sure why it rains or he's not sure where the sun goes every day when it goes down. But, you know, if you took my my call on this guy is I don't know if you read Flannery O'Connor or, or I have. Okay. Yeah, sure. She, she has a great she has a great way of stylizing that kind of seersucker southern used car salesman. <laughs> now, she does. I mean, she's wonderful about character development. But that's what he is. He is a southern, you know, nickel and dimer, cheap seersucker suit. Used car salesman. I mean, that's all he is. And he's been, and, and he would, in any other world, let me tell you, in any other world besides Republican politics in South Carolina, that's what he would be as a used car salesman. Instead, he's a politician representing those people. And it's, it's, it's incredible. And you know what, Mike? He did us a great, he did the country. It's probably the best example of Joe Wilson's public service ever. Because what he did was he made the point that the president was trying to make, which is that we're past the time for this BS. We're past Asked the time for, the, to quote the president, the bickering. It's got to stop. We, they were sent here with a job to do. And with Joe Wilson sitting there on the floor of a joint session of Congress, screaming at the president, with other members of Congress holding up pieces of paper, mm. uh, like, like it was like some game show, like a child. Yeah. Exactly. That this, this sends the message to the American people about who's serious about actually trying to work on their behalf and who is not. It, it actually, you could have hired Joe Wilson, and he couldn't have been been more helpful to making the president's point.
the Republicans have been uh, pressing forward on a whole bunch of health care laws. And since, uh, as usual, the Democrats did not counter them, they sat on their hands and asked for bipartisanship as the Republican uh, propaganda mach machine steamrolled them. Guess what happened? Of course, since there was no opposition, the American people believed the Republican lies. Here's your latest polls. Enjoy these. 67% of respondents believe that wait times for health care services, such as surgery, will increase Okay, if we do um, the Obama's plan. Now, there's no reason to believe that. It's not part of any of the plans. Now, you can say, hey, if the government runs things, eventually things will break down and then you'll have to wait. But the government isn't running anything here outside of insurance. And there's no reason. It's, we're not doing Canada's system or the Canadian system, even though that might be a perfectly lovely system, right? But we're not doing that. All we're offering under this plan is a public option, a choice for insurance. Nothing to do with weight lines. But 67% of Americans believe that lie. Gets worse. Five out of ten believe that the federal government will become directly involved in making personal health care decisions. That is flat out not true. But 50% of the country thinks the government's going to come in and be like, all right, John, I, you know, I don't think we need to set that leg. I think what we need to do is, uh, I don't know, I'm a government bureaucrat, let me make it up. No, all it's saying is you can get insurance through the government. Okay? And then if you don't like that insurance through the government, you think it sucks and there's government bureaucrats, great, go get your private insurance. And let the private insurance bureaucrats tell you what you can and can't get. But the government is not sending in any doctors to interfere and to get between you and your doctor. It's a lie. But 50% of the country has believed it. Again, I'm getting visions of before the Iraq war. When, since the Democrats didn't counter them and the media never clarified it, what we had was uh, over half the country believing Saddam Hussein personally did 9-11. And was involved with Al-Qaeda. Not true. In 2006, 43% of the country still believed that Saddam Hussein was involved in 9-11. That's if you don't counter-lies, they take hold. I'll give you a couple more. Six out of ten Americans uh, believe that taxpayers will be required to pay for abortions. That is not in the bill. They have went out of their way to take it out of any provision that might be interpreted that way. But six out of ten Americans believe it. Forty-six percent believe reforms will result in health care coverage for all illegal immigrants. Not in the bill. Forty-six percent believe it. Five out of ten think that cuts will be made to Medicare in order to cover more Americans. Not the case. Look, you know what? On some of these, you know, maybe on the Medicare cuts, if this happened and that happened and this happened, 20 years later, then they begin to make cuts. All right, I'm going to let, let's say, let, let them have that one, okay? But get a load of the last one. And I'm trying to be as you know, open-minded and fair as I possibly can here. But get a load of the last one. 54% believe the public option will increase premiums for Americans with private health insurance. Do you have any understanding of how unbelievably wrong that is? Now, if the public option, which is a choice you have in insurance run by the government, the insurance is run by the government, the doctors, hospitals, center are private still. If it costs more than private insurance, well, then people won't buy it. They'll buy the private insurance instead. If it costs less, well, then it might drive down the price of private insurance. But under no scenario can it drive up the price of private insurance. That makes no logical sense, is of course not anywhere in the plan, and it's just simply an unbelievable statement. But yet, since they put out that line and repeated it enough times, they got more than 50% of the country, 54% believe that if you have a, a second choice, 
a government-run choice in insurance that your private insurance premiums will go up, which makes no sense at all. In reality, of course, what has happened in the last 10 years is that your private insurance premiums have gone up without a government option. They've gone up 119%. And if you don't have anything to compete with it, they will continue to go up. Because in most places in this country, one uh, single uh, insurance, and sometimes two, have a monopoly or near monopoly in that market. They don't have real competition. That's why your prices are going up. We're trying to help you. We're trying to give them competition, give you choices, so that your rates go down, not up. And since the government is going to subsidize people who can't afford health care, if you don't have the public option and the premiums go up, we're going to have to pay more as taxpayers. Conservatives, aren't you against that? You don't want to pay more as taxpayers, right? If you have a government option, it brings down prices. We all pay less. But if no one makes this argument, then the lies win. And that is my fundamental problem with the Democratic Party. It is weakness through and through. On every occasion, they don't have the courage of their convictions, seemingly. They don't even have the nerve to make their case. Get out on TV and make your case. If you don't, of course they'll win. Speaking of healthcare, when you go to the doctor, you probably don't think about this, but you are a part of a massive economic system, a system that wastes a lot of money. And one reason among many for all that waste is you. Economically speaking, you're a consumer, but you don't really act like one. NPR's David Kastenbaum and Hannah Jaffe Walt have the story on why that is and whether it should change. David, we're going to start by imagining something strange. Go ahead. Okay, imagine you walk into a Target store, and everything is there on the shelves. All the shoes, the toasters, the guys in those red vests. But all the stuff on the shelves, nothing has any prices. That is what being a patient in our healthcare system is like. You mean because we have insurance. Yes, this is weird thing number one. You want to get your knee fixed? Fine. You want to stay alive another six months? Fine. You want that drug you saw on TV? No problem. It's covered. No prices. And even weirder, when you get to the cash register at Target, your boss is there saying, hey, let me help you out with that. That's weird thing number two. Most of the time, our employer pays a large part of our health insurance. Right. We don't know what anything costs. And even if we did, it doesn't really matter because we're not paying for a lot of it. 
Now, none of this is necessarily bad. It's just unusual in economic markets. And it does mean that we as consumers, we don't have a strong incentive to keep costs down. And this is a big question for people who think about trying to fix our system. Is that okay that we patients are not involved? Or is it a problem? Maybe the problem. Of course, the answer depends on who you ask. We asked two guys. Well, actually, we asked a lot of guys and women. But we were most fascinated by these two because they're both business-minded people, but they completely disagree on this question. The first guy, David Goldhill, started by describing this devastating hospital experience. He wrote about it recently in The Atlantic. His father died from an infection he got in the hospital. Goldhill says, as a business guy, the whole experience seemed really wrong. I thought about all the things I had seen while accompanying my father uh, in his time in the hospital that made absolutely no sense to me. The the fact that my father several times was taken for procedures intended uh, for other patients, the hospital's minor investment in information technology, less than, frankly, I saw it in my own dry cleaner. And here is an industry where information literally is a life and death matter. For Goldhill, this made it very clear that patients need to be acting more like customers, asserting their right to spend their money here or take it elsewhere. Let's take all the money we're spending on insurance, give it to the patients, and have the patients spend much of it directly. Let's have catastrophic insurance for the worst cases, uh, the truly rare, major, unpredictable events, and the rest let's rely on the consumer. The key is that the patient is actually getting the bill. Goldhill calculated this amazing number. He says, if you look over the course of your lifetime, what we and our employer spend on a family's health insurance, it is $1.7 million. So his proposal, instead of making that invisible to us, let the patients control it. Require that every person buy some sort of catastrophic plan. Only expenses over, say, $50,000 would be covered. Less than that, you're on your own, but you would have that $1.7 million. Richard Kirsch hates this idea. He's our other guy. Yeah, so Kirsch works for a group called Healthcare for America Now, and we sat the two of them down. And he says, no, it may seem like we're consumers, but healthcare, he argues, healthcare is different from shopping around for a car or a pair of shoes. Let me start with, let's say you look down on your arm and you see a growth there. And, you know, you're worried that growth might be cancer, but you're also scared. If now you've got to go into a bank account or a financial uh, barriers to getting that care, even if the money's there, but you're not sure how long it's going to last or you need it for, you may not go to the doctor and see if that growth is a problem or not. And you so you go and it turns out it's not a problem. Good. Was that a waste? But what if it, you didn't go and it was a serious melanoma that cost a lot more exp- expense and was a lot more serious to your life later on? We don't want healthcare consumers making decisions based on finances. Kirsch makes another economic argument. Markets, he says, they need to have good information to work. And the patient, the consumer here, does not have enough information. And that's like when my wife was in the hospital with a gallbladder surgery recently, and it was an emergency procedure, and she was going to shop around and see, is this the best surgeon? Is this the best hospital? Is that exactly the right procedure? Are we going to trust this doctor or not? No, that's, that's again, not how. Excuse me, but, but uh, uh, again, that's a misunderstanding of how consumer economies work. They went back and forth on this. There is some data on this question they're debating, an answer, and it is... Unfortunately, they're both right. If you make patients more like customers, you force them to chip in more co-pays for drugs and help pay for doctor's visits and procedures, that does seem to eliminate waste. But it also means some people don't go to the doctor when they really need to. 
Richard Kirsch and David Goldhill, they do agree on one thing, though. The system we have now, that system, it is definitely not working. We can work it out. We can work it out. Life is very short and there's no time for about Japanese healthcare on September 7th, Washington Post reporter Blaine Harden acknowledged in the lead that Japan's system costs half of what the U.S.'s does with better outcomes. But, Harden wrote, it does so in part because of its, quote, shortcomings in care that many well-insured Americans would find intolerable, close quote. Hmm, that sounds bad. What kind of shortcomings are we talking about? Harden talked about how much easier it is to see a doctor in Japan, so that's not it. He tried to explain that hospital stays are a little bit longer, but it's difficult to spot the shortcoming there exactly. In fact, Harden seems to have a peculiar understanding of how a healthcare system is supposed to work. As an example of what Harden calls the system's socialism, he quotes one source complaining that, quote, more than one-third of the workers' premiums are used to transfer wealth from the young, healthy, and rich to the old, unhealthy, and poor, close quote. As economist Dean Baker pointed out in his Beat the Press blog, that's what insurance is supposed to do. People who don't need help put money into a pool for people who do need help. Writes Baker, quote, This quote is telling us that Japan's health insurance system is operating like a health insurance system, close quote. Not exactly a newsworthy phenomenon. There's a lot of really serious, serious news going on. Right. I, I think it's very important that we try to deal with the real news because so many other people who do podcasts and cable television and blog posting and all the rest, of, all they want to talk about is Joe Wilson and race. Right. So we should talk about missiles and the healthcare system. Why don't you start and, and tell us a little bit about the president's strategic thinking about why we can change from the large emplacements in Poland to something more of a satellite-based or some other kind of system to defend more specifically about the middle-range missiles that Iran is building. I'd rather not. You can focus on that all you want, Ron, but of course the real discussion in Washington, the real debate, is the, the health care overhaul system, a bill that Max Bogus and his uh, gang of one... The gang uh, of one. Uh, ...presented, because, you know, he spent months and months working on this compromise to get... He negotiated with everybody. Republicans and Democrats are all on board 
The no. Titanic. <laughs> no, that's right. No, and Max is Max is on board. Max yeah, has uh, produced right. a balanced bill, a common sense bill, one that can pass the Senate. So Max says. It delivers on the vision for meaningful health care reform. And I share it with President Obama and millions of Americans of all stripes that goal. He only needs another 59 votes to be able to get this Right, passed. well, he has won so far, right? That's correct. He did say, though, that there will be uh, amendments in the committee, there will be changes, and matter of fact, there will be lots of changes, apparently, because I have not heard one person who is happy with what he proposed. There'll be a change in the weather. There'll be a change in the sea. Yeah. But most of all, there'll be a change in Joe Wilson, because he's been told to improve his behavior by... The House of Representatives admonished uh, by a basically a party line vote, although there were 12 Democrats who said they shouldn't do this and seven Republicans who said they should. I I was actually very pleased that these 19 people chose to break with their parties, uh, irrespective of all their reasons. I just thought having this on a straight party line vote would add only to the sort of absurd rancor and partisanship that we've descended to in the current But th- it was a party line vote, the fact that uh, 19 out of 435. Well, but on the other hand, Ken, we had all that very useful debate on the floor over this particular issue. For example, well, let's listen to a little bit of it. I think it is clear to the American people that there are far more important issues facing this nation than what we're addressing right now. The president said the time for games is over. I agree with the president. He graciously accepted my apology, and the issue is over. That was Joe Wilson, of course, and um, that might have been the first time that he had agreed with the president, or called him gracious for that matter, but at any rate, he expressed his own defense there, and I think a lot of people thought that was pretty compelling. Here's what Republican leader John Boehner had to say. Never has this happened before, that we're going to bring a resolution of, of disapproving of his behavior. My goodness, we could be doing this every day of the week. The American people sent us here to work together to solve the problems of our country. They didn't come here to talk about our behavior. So there seems to have been great agreement, at least among the Republicans, that this was a waste of time. But And playing partisan politics. And playing partisan politics. But there is another issue here which may not have many receptive ears on the Republican side, but which does matter to at least some Democrats, and that is the issue of respect, disrespect for the president, either as a person or as the leader of the country. And the person who was making that point most particularly in the House was the number three leader in the House, Representative Jim Clyburn from the same state of South Carolina. Now, before we hear from Jim Clyburn, remember initially Nancy Pelosi, perhaps following Barack Obama's lead, say, look, okay, let's move on. You know, the, he's, he has embarrassed the House, but, uh, you know, and he's, he's paid a price for it, at least he's been singled out, but it's time to move on. But Clyburn, other members of the Congressional Black Caucus said, look, we're not going to let this go. As Hank Johnson, the congressman from Georgia, said, if we ignore this, then, you know, there'll be more white shirts and uh, white road people uh, around the country. A little extreme, and I think it was extreme, but the point is there are some people felt that Joe Wilson needed to be punished. Here's a little bit of what Representative Clyburn had to say on the floor. There are certain things that you do and certain things that you don't do. And when you do those things that you don't do, the proper thing to do is to show proper contrition. Well, and and show the proper contrition how many times might be the question, because Joe Wilson did apologize once. Then the House Democrats were insisting that he apologize again on the House floor. And whether that should have been called for or not is probably not one of the great deathless issues of this year or any other. But it does point to something that is becoming 
part of the September debate in this country, uh, as it does periodically, and that is the racial question of whether we are treating Barack Obama differently as president because he is uh, an African American. Well, look, I think that when people show up at anti-Obama rallies uh, with a Confederate flag... As they uh, did in Washington last weekend. To me, there's undeniably a racial connotation there. But when you have Barack Obama with a Hitler mustache or with a swat sticker, they, they they did, they did that with George W. Bush, too. They, right. And they said awful well, things. About I think it's very hard to say that calling somebody a Nazi is in race. and of itself yeah. a race yeah. particular issue. Uh, it has more to do with power of government, uh, tyranny, uh, uh, unreasonable, emotional-driven madness. You call anybody a Nazi, uh, that's a little, a little far. A little it, 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 it is extreme, but it isn't necessarily race-based. No, I agree. So, so that kind of criticism and many of the other kinds of criticism, whether they are extreme and whether they're irrational, or not, that are being directed at this administration may not necessarily be tinged with a racial component. But there are many people in this country who do feel as though, as a rule, there is a racial undertone to the criticism of this administration, and that to deny it is to be naive. Jimmy Carter had this town hall, whatever you call it, meeting this week, and he said, look, Joe Wilson's outburst was based on race and racism, and the attacks on President Obama are based on race and racism. But interestingly enough, and I guess he's done this from the beginning, President Obama will not take the bait. Yeah. In other words, we saw from, from, I think maybe perhaps he felt he made a mistake with Louis Gates, um, perhaps he made a mistake with, with, you know, he was aware of the controversy with Reverend Wright, but the point is, Barack Obama, for all the talks about him being post-racial, which is my favorite cereal, by post the way. Post-toasties. Oh, I love that. It's delicious, but sometimes too much sugar. Um, I think that he has gone out of his way to stay out of that debate. And, and that, it's, it's a no-win debate for him. That's right. 2007, 2008, he did everything he could to de-emphasize is uh, the fact that he would be the first African-American president to de-emphasize everything that looked like it was going to be racially polarizing. For him now to, to weigh in on this, he, he tried to, he, he almost forgave Joe Wilson before Joe Wilson right. apologized. He was so eager to have this thing uh, taken away. But not all African-Americans feel that way. A lot of people feel much more confrontational about this. They feel that the president ought to push back when he is dissed, and they feel that they themselves have something to lose in seeing this president treated with less respect than they perceive all white presidents have been treated. Right, but Colin Powell made the point that he does, he's less sure that it's race and more about the just the, the lack of civility in this country between the internets and the, the the cable TV shows, both left and right, and the screaming that goes on in the town hall meetings from left and right, at this point mostly from the right. The undeniable fact, of course, is that you have an African-American president, but the lack of civility has been going on for years and it's just getting worse and worse. I think, though, that there is something else that goes on, which is that people who want to criticize the administration and are criticizing the administration, who make a business of criticizing the administration, have leaped on this discussion and said, oh, now they're saying that if you're any kind of critic of Barack Obama at all, you're a racist. And they then can say, I'm not a racist just because I disagree with him on tax policy, health care, missile defense, what have you. And of course, Disagreeing with the president on those issues does not make you a racist. But that's not really the base accusation either. The base accusation is that somehow the identity, the, the authority of the presidential office has been in some sense or another lowered or disrespected by some people in the media and by some people in the political argument in a way that suggests a lack of respect for a black American president. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. I wanted to talk for just a minute about the upcoming podcast awards. The nominations start on October 4th. This is going to be the fourth annual podcast awards, and we've been nominated twice before. Both times we attempted to be nominated, we were successful. One year came and went, and we just didn't even try. But uh, this is something we've done before. Many of you uh, who've been listening for a long time are going to be familiar with this. But this year is going to be a little bit different. So first, just the basics of it. There's a nomination process and then a voting process. It's kind of like the primaries and then the general election. All the shows try to get themselves nominated, and then the ones who succeed in getting nominated then get voted on. This year, instead of just going for the politics category, I would like to get the show also nominated in the best produced category. So the way this is going to work is on October 4th, I'm going to really start beating the drums and try to get as many people to nominate this show for both the best produced and politics categories over at podcastawards.com. For the nomination process, you can only nominate a show once. So it's real easy. It's a one-time thing. You go in, you nominate the show for the two categories, and then you're done. The voting process will come a couple of weeks later, and that's a little bit more intense because you can vote every day for the two-week period, maybe 15-day period of the voting process. So then it'll be really intense, and I'll be asking you to put it on your calendar and remind yourself to vote every day. Here's the real twist, though, because for the last three years in a row, the politics category has been dominated by a nationally syndicated radio show that also happens to have a podcast. So, of course, they have thousands and thousands of listeners, um, you know, who knows how many actually, but they always dominate the Podcast Alley top 10 list, then they dominate the podcast awards, and, you know, that would be all fine and dandy, except I just have a personal grudge because they're kind of libertarian douchebags, and I just hate to see them winning the way they are, as though they're, like, the most popular show in the world. This year, I'd like to change that, and I'd like your help in doing that. So, the way I'm going to run the Podcast Awards promotion this year is the Best of the Left is going to run in the nomination process the same as before, basically running in the primaries. But then when it comes to the general election, we're going to swing our support over to the Young Turks. This year will be the first year that the Young Turks will be involved in the Podcast Awards because I asked them to, basically. I sent them an email, said, I really want to encourage you guys to run in the Podcast Awards, and I'm happy to offer my services to help you win. And on top of just giving you advice and kind of taking you through the process of how it works, I'm also going to be encouraging my listeners to support your show. So I know not all of my listeners are fans of the Young Turks, but they are regularly featured in this show, and I know a lot of you do like them. So during the voting process, I'm going to encourage you to support them in their categories. They uh, will hopefully be nominated in the People's Choice and Politics categories. So there you go. That's just a little bit of a heads up of what's coming. Wanted to let you know um, plenty of time ahead of time. And of course, I'll be continuing to talk about this as the time gets nearer. During the entire awards process, I will be sending out notices via Twitter, Facebook, and email. If you want to be in the loop on those things, be sure to sign up for your preferred method of contact now.
Okay, so now quickly, I just want to thank a couple of members. Julio C signed up on August 4th, and Nancy B signed up uh, much more recently, September 5th, with a yearly membership. Thanks very much to both of you. This show simply could not be run putting out as many episodes as we're currently putting out without the support of the members. It's just a flat mathematical fact. So if you want to become a member and help support the show, go to the website bestofleft.com and click the membership tab. All the details are there. That is where you will also find the details about the Best of the Left raw feed. This is the big bonus feature that members have access to that others don't. And of course the raw feed is where I put all of the clips that I find that are candidates to be in the final show. I put them in the raw feed in their original format. So if it's a TV show or online video, they go into the raw feed as video. If they come from the radio, obviously they're just audio. And what ends up happening is a lot of the clips in that raw feed end up not making the final cut into the show. So they are basically bonus material, which only the members have access to. So that is it for today. Stay connected with the show on Twitter, Facebook, signing up for our email newsletters. You can support the show by leaving reviews in iTunes or voting at Podcast Alley, which we could really use this month. Uh, Podcast Alley's not going so well. Last I checked, we were at number 10. We could really use about 70 more votes in Podcast Alley just to get us to a nice round 200 and keep us in the top 10 through the end of the month. The show is also available on your smartphone by going to stitcher.com, and you can visit the show notes in our blog to find all the links to the sources and music used in the episode. Links to the music is also embedded in the enhanced version itself. When you're listening to iTunes, the links are available as the song's playing. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members from bestoftheleft.com. Black and Just a fond farewell to a friend